Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 4. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. Today we are talking about, once again, not Buffy, but Angel Season 4, Episode 19, Sanctuary, where Angel tries to save Faith and, in doing so, must turn his back on Buffy. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. As to Sanctuary, we'll talk about making things as hard as possible for the protagonist, here, Angel. Conflict in all the dialogue that keeps the scenes tense and the story moving. When to leave out backstory and the world or society as an antagonist. There will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. The original air date for Sanctuary was May 2nd, 2000. It was directed by Michael Lang and written by Tim Minear and Joss Whedon. The previously on from Buffy includes the council uh, thugs, who I called thugs one, two, and three, some Buffy faith history, and Buffy uh, telling Wesley in the last episode of Angel that if he'd been a better watcher, maybe she would have been a better role model. So this episode is the fourth Faith episode. I think it stands really well on its own. But as I talked about last time, I feel like we get the most out of these Faith episodes by watching all four in a row. We left off in 5 by 5 on the midpoint commitment by Angel to help Faith. So usually in a very strongly structured story, we see the protagonist make a major commitment or suffer a major reversal at the middle of the story. And if we see these two Angel episodes as a two-episode arc, that is what happens at the end of 5 by 5 Wesley also, for his subplot, suffers a reversal because because he, he first commits by grabbing a knife to help Angel kill Faith and then dropping the knife when he sees Angel comforting Faith instead. Major reversal for Wesley. So even though this is part of a two-episode arc, this episode does have its own plot points and story. The opening conflict for it shows Faith and Angel riding down the elevator to his apartment. And it's an old-fashioned elevator, the kind with what looks like a cage that pulls over as the door. So it's as if they are in a cage together. Faith has lots of cuts on her face. Her arms are crossed as if she is holding herself together. And she moves very slowly. Angel carries her backpack. He steps out first and he has to say her name and wait a moment before she exits the elevator. So from that very first scene, things are hard for Angel. It's not easy even to bring Faith to a place where he believes she'll be safe. 
In his bedroom, he puts a blanket around her, tells her it's okay, she can rest. She lies down on his bed, it's still made, and she's on her side, and he puts another blanket over her. This one has all these colors and patterns, and she's almost but not quite in a fetal position and just looks broken. Angel says, you rest now, and she nods but just barely. He sets her backpack on a chair, tells her he'll be close, and as he turns to go, Faith says, Angel. He turns around. There's a quick scene of her leaping toward him and stabbing him very fast and violent. Then we're back to Faith lying there looking at him and she says nothing. So though Angel might not know it, this too is hard. Just having Faith lie down and rest. She is so close to trying to kill him again. And we go to credits. I love the visual storytelling in these first three minutes. I think we all as writers have our defaults or what's easier for us to write. And I tend in my first drafts to just write dialogue in a vacuum. Something I feel like I shouldn't say because if you read, I don't want you to read my books and say, oh, wow, she really does write in a vacuum. It's just that I have more of a memory for things people say and an ear for dialogue. And that's what I focus on moving the story and then I go back usually on my first rewrite and really fill in the the rest of the scene around it. And here is such a fantastic use of visual elements. The fact that the elevator looks like a cage, that they're in there together, that Faith is reluctant to step out of that cage. And that Angel first puts a blanket around her. She lies down. He puts another one over her. It so shows his caring for her. And then Faith's body language, she can barely nod. It's like she's exhausted, overwhelmed, and that almost fetal position shows her vulnerability. But if she totally curled up, we wouldn't see her as a threat. So she is not quite there. And we could still see her, despite how broken and vulnerable she looks, attacking Angel. So, so much visual going on there. At 3 minutes 53 seconds back from the credits, Cordelia is in the outer office area. Her face is bruised. She's got a black eye. Her hair is in a headband. It's very scraggly. She opens a file cabinet and sighs. Wesley walks in, also battered and bruised. Wesley tells her he's so sorry he allowed this to happen. And Cordelia says, well, I believe it was Faith who allowed her elbow to collide with my face. Wesley doesn't look like he believes her when she follows up by saying it's not his fault. And she tells him if it's any consolation, he really does look like he was tortured by a much larger woman. So all of this gets in a little bit of exposition, reminding viewers what happened last episode. And then Wesley says she's still here, I assume. Cordelia leans in, lowers her voice, and says he gave her his bed. Ugh. Angel appears, asks how Wesley is, and checks the donut box. And Wesley says, developed a sweet fang, have you? Angel ignores him, turns to Cordelia, says, you get jelly? Cordelia waves a hand, whole selection. No wonder she is not happy. He actually sent her out to get donuts. And Wesley says, won't she find it difficult enjoying delicious jelly-filled donuts if she is, one assumes, bound and gagged? 
Angel says they went through this last night, and Wesley agrees that the police would be ill-equipped to hold a slayer against her will, but he doesn't understand why the woman who brutally tortured him last night, this morning, gets pastries. So again, so much information there and entirely comes in through conflict between the three of them. As they talk, Cordelia is writing something at the desk. Angel asks Wesley what he should do, let Faith starve. Wesley says no, there are more humane ways to deal with a rabid animal. Angel reminds him Faith's human, and in case Wesley forgot, they don't give up on humans. And Wesley says, don't you dare take the moral high ground with me after what she did. And he goes on that he believes in helping people, but not in coddling murderers. As I mentioned last time, it does seem like Wesley is suggesting that Angel should kill Faith, that reference to rabid animals, the acknowledgement by them both that the police can't hold a slayer against her will. Although, of course, Wesley was just tortured, so if he engages in some hyperbole about putting down rabid animals, it's understandable. But I, I do think we are seeing this difference in his attitude when it is somewhat abstract about faith, hurting people, not abstract, but when it is less personal versus when she tortures him, when he sees up close what she is capable of and what she will do. And Angel says it wasn't that long ago Wesley made the case for Faith's rehabilitation. And Wesley says it wasn't too long ago that I had full feeling in my right arm. This foreshadows and encompasses a major theme here and an age-old debate about criminal acts. What is the purpose of jail? Is it punishment? Are we trying to rehabilitate someone who committed a crime? Are we trying to protect the public or some combination of all these things? Angel says Faith wants to change, but Wesley says there's evil in her no matter what she wants. If Angel sets her free, she'll kill again. So we're going towards that protection aspect. But also it seems to be somewhat contrary to Wesley's statement in the previous episode that having a soul means having the urge to do right. Or at least he thinks the evil in faith overrides that. Wesley takes his coat and leaves. We're seven minutes in and Angel says he'll come around. And Cordelia says, Wesley, sure, people always get a little funny right after they've been sadistically tortured. Well, you'd know. She hands him the checkbook with checks to sign, pointing to each spot as he talks about why they need to help Faith. After she tears out the checks, Angel says, wait, those were all made out to you. And Cordelia tells him, yes, they're for vacation pay. She's not sticking around while Psycho Case is roaming around downstairs with three tons of medieval weaponry. She puts on her sunglasses and leaves, which is so healthy of Cordelia. We don't know what she really thinks about Angel's philosophy, but she is taking care of herself. And underscoring that question about protection. So normally by this point in the episode, and and really somewhat sooner, we would see a story spark or inciting incident to get the main plot rolling. Because I see this as part of a two-part, and I think 
it really is meant to be, there isn't quite as clear of an inciting incident just for this episode. If there is one, it might be Wesley opposing the jelly donuts. They're talking about food, but it is really about whether faith can be redeemed. And Wesley is saying no, and Angel is insisting on trying. And that is what this episode is about, Angel trying to help Faith redeem herself. At eight minutes in, the scene switches to outside the apartment building where Faith tortured Wesley. Inside, Detective Kate Loffley is going through the crime scene. Another detective sees her, sighs, and asks what she's doing there. And Kate says, I'm a detective, Kendrick. See? She holds up an evidence bag and says, I'm detecting. This tells us so much about their relationship and also Kate's personality. Kendrick tells her the fugitive is from Sunnydale. The guy who lives here identified her as the one who mugged him and took his wallet and keys. Kendrick also speculates that Kate is here because she heard the rumors that the girl has some supernatural powers. Kate acts like she doesn't know what he's talking about. And he says, come on, Kate, everybody knows you've gone all scully. Kate has to explain to him that Mulder is the believer in the X-Files and Scully is the skeptic. Kendrick says, Scully's the chick, right? And Kate responds, yes, but she's not the one that wants to believe. And Kendrick says, and you want to believe. Kate responds, oh, I already believe. That's the problem. This is good exposition, both for Buffy fans who don't watch Angel, might not know anything about Kate, and for Angel fans who don't watch Buffy because it fills in a little bit more about Faith's backstory. And it comes out through conflict between the two of them. And so we avoid either one saying, as you know, you always come to these scenes or, you know, Kendrick, you're always giving me a hard time. Angel returns to the apartment. It takes him a minute to find Faith. She's standing against a wall. She looks really beat up and exhausted, both frightened and scary. Angel says, Faith, I have donuts. He puts the box down. He's about two car lengths from her, and he gradually closes the distance, telling her he understands what she's going through. He wants to help, but he says, but there are a few things you have to do. First, I need you to give me that knife. She looks down and the camera follows and we see she's holding a very large kitchen knife at her side. She lifts it to about waist height, pointing it at Angel, but then very slowly grasps the blade with her free hand, turns the knife around and gives it to him. He tells her she should be resting and she says she's been asleep for eight months. You rest. At 11 minutes, 24 seconds in, Lila enters Lindsay's office at Wolfram and Hart. They are two of the three attorneys who set Faith after Angel to begin with. She says she found Faith. She's with Angel. And she goes on, that's right. The reason our little assassin hasn't made good on her contract is because she's rooming with the Mark. And Lindsay says, we hired her to kill him. Lila responds, I believe I covered that with the assassin part. Lindsay is shocked, but Lila says, I told you he wouldn't be easy. He can't be bought, and apparently he can't be killed, even by a vampire slayer. 
Rumor has it he used to actually date one. They talk about how bad they'll look when the word gets to the senior partners and how are they going to fix it. So again, nice background for anyone on Angel who doesn't recall their Buffy lore and this reference to dating Buffy foreshadowing that we'll see her later and the complexity of what Angel is doing, the complexity for him emotionally. When Lindsay and Lila talk about how they're going to fix this, the camera shifts to the chair in front of the desk, which was out of the frame before, and we see the third L, Lee. He's in a cervical collar, all beat up from the last time when Faith did this to him, and he says, I say we kill her. I see this as the one-quarter twist for the episode. That's how I think of the first major plot turn in a story. And usually it's 25% through an episode sometimes or any story. Sometimes it's more like a third. And it comes from outside the protagonist, spins the story in a new direction, and raises the stakes. So a spin here in that we know Wolfram and Hart is going to send someone else after Faith. And the reason that matters so much here is not so much physical danger, but how Faith is likely to react and what that will do to Angel's attempt to help her choose to change. So we're 12 minutes, 25 seconds in. We close up on Faith sitting alone and she's hearing whispering voices. We get very quick flashes to her killing the deputy mayor on Buffy. Buffy's voice over that saying faith no and also buffy saying you killed a man with a flash to faith saying i don't care in the present faith grabs her backpack puts her things in it angel sees her and he follows her trying to convince her not to leave faith says why are you doing this why are you being nice to me he tells her she's not his prisoner the door is open but he's still talking to her as she exits reminding her that he told her once she didn't have to go out in the darkness and she did she thought she could just touch it but it swallowed her whole and he says so tell me how do you like it she turns around and punches him hard he straightens up takes a breath but faces her and doesn't hit back. She looks down and says, help me. And he nods and says, yeah. We cut to Wesley. He's in a pub. He's throwing darts. He still looks really beat up. He goes to get his darts. They are all in the target. And he ducks as one flies from behind him and hits the target as well. He turns. It's Watcher Council Thug 1 from Who Are You, who then mimes throwing another dart. Thugs 2 and 3 join him, and Thug 2 says, Hello, Wesley. And we cut to a commercial. When we return, all four are in a dark wood booth. Thug 2 says, So, Los Angeles. He takes out a cigarette and lighter. Wesley looks pointedly at the no smoking sign, and Wesley says, California. Thug 2 ignores the sign and lights his cigarette. I really love this. I don't think it has the same impact now. But around 2000, California, at least Los Angeles, did have that no smoking in bars. And it was years before Chicago instituted that. And I remember being quite envious. I don't hang around in bars a ton, but I do enjoy meeting friends for a drink. Back when I used to play music, I would go and, and sing and play in these bars and just come home reeking of cigarette smoke. And it's, of course, terrible for your throat. And here, it was such a California thing to be 
ban smoking. So it just it tells you so much about what these thugs think about California, how they view it, and we'll see how they view Wesley. Another example of good visual storytelling, good use of setting. Wesley claims California seemed like a good place to settle after he resigned from the council. The thugs exchange glances at the word resign, and thug one says, wouldn't cough up the DOS for the airfare home, would they? And thug three says, all those alchemists on the board of directors, and they still make us fly coach. Bastards. Nice attempt at bonding with Wesley by these thugs, which also brings out some backstory. And we'll get a little more of that, but again, through conflict. Because Thug 2 says the council's not stupid. They're willing to admit when they make a mistake. And he invites Wesley to come home with them. The council will reinstate him to his rightful position as watcher. And I wonder of whom, because at that point, Buffy has quit the council. She doesn't have a watcher, and certainly she's not going to take Wesley back. And Thug, too, goes on. It was a nasty business back in Sunnydale, but he says, nobody blames you. And I love this Wesley line. Really? Because I rather got the impression they did when they sacked me. If the writing and plot elements I talk about in this podcast help you with your own writing, you might also find two of my audiobooks useful. Super Simple Story Structure, A Quick Guide to Plotting and Writing Your Novel by L.M. Lilly, and The One-Year Novelist, A Week-by-Week Guide to Writing Your Novel in One Year. This one is also narrated by me. You can get both books wherever you buy audiobooks. Also, you can ask at your public library. Many of them loan audiobooks, and they can order a copy of either book for you or may already have it. You can also get both books, The One-Year Novelist and Super Simple Story Structure, in ebook or workbook editions. Links are in the show notes. Thug 2 responds, as I said, mistake, one that can now be corrected with your help. So again, more conflict, more backstory. It works because we've got humor and it's present-day conflict. Wesley's smart. He knows these thugs want something from him. They didn't just come to offer him an olive branch. The thugs show Wesley a photograph of Faith and say they know where she is and they know Wesley has access. Wesley says no, and Thug 1 says loyal to a vampire now, is it? But Thug 2 says that's not why they're there and goes on a rogue slayer, Wesley, far more dangerous than any single vampire. Surely you understand that. And Wesley says all too well. But he asks why they need him. They're the best, the council's elite. And then it dawns on him and he smiles a little and says, she cleaned your clocks, didn't she? It was Buffy in Faith's body who defeated these three guys. But note that we don't bring that in. There's a reference later uh, that if if you know what happened makes sense, but you would never know it from watching this. And I'm highlighting that because 
It's an example of how a very rich backstory can make your story amazing even if you don't reference it. In fact, it's sometimes stronger that we don't somehow find a way to show this because it does not matter for the purposes of this story. It only matters that Wesley figures out that these thugs have failed before and so they need Wesley. So that's always something to think of if you're tempted to weave in backstory where you're not sure it belongs or maybe it slows things down is does the reader, does the viewer need to know this? Will it add anything? Here too, it's just a little fun for Buffy fans. Thug 2 is very irked and he's acting dead serious and he says she's betrayed her calling. Counsel, you. She has power and the willingness to use that power for evil. She must be stopped. We cut to a distraught-looking Faith holding onto the kitchen counter to stop herself from shaking. She glances at Angel and says, so how does this work? He tells her there's no simple answer. Just because she decided to change doesn't mean the world's ready for her to. The truth is no matter how much you suffer or how many good deeds you do, you may never balance out the cosmic scale. She'll probably be haunted maybe for the rest of her life. This is a major theme in the episode and it did two things for me. One is it emphasized that those flashbacks in the previous episode, I think that is part of what they were about, what we were meant to understand about Angel, why he is so haunted by the things he did, and I think particularly after he had a soul. But this also is what got me thinking that the antagonist of this episode is really society as a whole, represented by these different people. Everyone is working against Angel trying to help Faith redeem herself and uh, against Faith's chances of redemption. They have different motives. Angel's closest allies, Wesley, Cordelia, are against it. Wolfram and Hart, for totally other reasons, are against it. Buffy comes in. She's against it. Faith's own view of herself all of this pushes against Angel, and I think that is an example of how can society as a whole be the antagonist. If you're going to do that, you need specific individuals to take the actions, to have their own motives and reasons that are genuine and believable, but that are also informed by and influenced by society as a whole. And all of these, maybe with the exception of Wolfram and Hart, which doesn't care, they just want to get rid of Angel, or at least those three lawyers do. But everyone else, it is partly their influence by what Cordelia said in the previous episode, that, that most people don't change, can't change, and that when someone goes so far down a certain path, it is too late. Now that we get a little humor, because Faith nods toward the microwave and says, so how does this work? And Angel says, uh, power level time start. Nice use of humor to keep the scene interesting after Angel's little monologue there. And to distract from that, we are foreshadowing Faith's choice at the end and her really taking in all these things Angel has said. And then the humor 
turns out to not just be there for distraction or to lighten the mood because it leads to a much more serious conflict. Angel asks if Faith is sure popcorn will be enough for her, and Faith says she can live on it until Cordelia Faith will pay her back. But Angel thinks it's Wesley's. And Faith says, oh, maybe we just don't mention it then. And Angel says, maybe we do. They talk about apologizing. Faith doesn't know if she knows how. And they go from the popcorn. Faith takes it right to what they are really discussing and says, how do you say, hey, gee, really sorry, I tortured you nearly to death. Angel responds, well, first off, I think I'd leave out the G. And secondly, I think you have to ask yourself, are you? Faith says, what if she can't say it? She points out there are some things you can't take back, no matter how sorry you are. And Angel says he has experience with that. And Faith says, yeah, he's been doing this 100 years. She's not going to make it through the next 10 minutes. And he tells her, so make it through the next five or the next one. But she doesn't think she can, and it hurts, and she hates that it hurts. And Angel tells her it's supposed to. All that pain and suffering she's caused is coming back to her. Deal with it, and maybe she has a shot at being free. Faith listens. She kind of half laughs and says, I gotta be the first slayer in history to be sponsored by a vampire. And Angel responds, yeah, well, I got some experience in that area, too. Now Faith's eyes widen, and she says, oh, God. Be, and goes on about how will she make things right with Buffy, ignoring Angel, who's trying to tell her it's not about Buffy. Faith goes on that Buffy was the one person all her life who tried to be her friend and, quote, and I screwed her, not to mention her boyfriend, only him literally, end quote. 20 minutes, 19 seconds in, Angel says, Faith, you and I never, and Faith says, no, not you, the new one. She sees his shock and realizes he didn't know, and she's saying she's so sorry. He tries to shrug it off. He tells her there. She said she was sorry. That's good. And he turns away from her and says, good. This does so much. One, it answers a question from enemies. The episode in Buffy where Faith thought she had turned Angel and Angel was pretending to be Angelus again, but it turned out it was pretense to get information from Faith. And there was always a question about how far did it go with Angel and Faith? Did they actually have sex? Because it's never quite clear. So it answers that and it sets the stage for when Buffy appears. And this is part of why I wanted to talk about all four of these in a row, because if we talk about these two Angel episodes farther down the line, it is harder to understand his anger toward Buffy and how he is almost hostile to her. I tend to forget when I spread out the watching of it that Buffy just found out Faith slept with Riley, at least fairly recently, but also that Angel in I Will Remember You, that was only 10 episodes ago. And Angel had that too short time when he was human and he and Buffy were in love. He knows what that was like. He knows probably more than ever before 
what he can't have, what he is missing. And for him, that's pretty recent. But Buffy doesn't remember it. And finding out that she left and her life just went on, which which was his choice and his intent. But all the same, it highlights it. He probably thinks about it all the time. And she doesn't even know it happened. So he is in one place finding out she has a new boyfriend where Buffy is somewhere else almost entirely. We are approaching the midpoint of the episode, and that is a pretty good reversal for Angel to find this out. Although it doesn't directly relate to our main plot here, it does inform things that happen later. At 20 minutes, 51 seconds in, Lila, Lindsay, and Lee meet with a new assassin, Lindsay says he just wants the job done, no slow, painful death, but Lee thinks some pain would be good. Lila emphasizes there's going to be nothing in writing, it's a handshake deal only, and then apologizes for being speciesist. And we see the assassin for the first time. He's pretty scary looking with very sharp teeth and no hands. We're at 21 minutes, 53 seconds in. So not only is is this part roughly the midpoint of the episode, we should be seeing the last major plot turn for the two-episode arc. Usually that's about 75% through. It grows from the midpoint and takes the story in yet another new direction. And here, I think that happens out of a combination of two events. One just happened with Wolfram and Hart hiring this new assassin. More of the turn comes from an upcoming scene where we find out the council thugs plans both come out of or matter because of angel's decision at the midpoint of the two episode arc to try to help faith save herself and seek redemption the council in particular will put that at great risk but so will the assassin So at 22 minutes at the pub, the thugs give Wesley a syringe with enough sedative in it to down a man twice his size or a slayer. He asks if they intend to take her alive. Thug 1 looks disgusted at Wesley's concern, but Thug 2 says, of course, they'll take her to England for rehabilitation. So who are you certainly suggest that that's not what they're going to do. But again, we don't need to know that. So that backstory doesn't come in. But Wesley is clearly somewhat suspicious. In the background, Thug 1 leers at the waitress who brings more beer. So another example of visual storytelling. Wesley has one condition to help that no harm must come to the vampire. Thug 1 says, oh, don't be a ponce. Thug 2 says we have no quarrel with the vampire and slides the syringe across the table. Wesley's not satisfied with that. He points out Angel's a special case. He has a soul and that Wesley's fought more evil and done more good with Angel than he ever did working for the council. Thug 2 gives his word that no harm will come to Angel and they shake hands. Nice callback to that earlier scene with the assassin and the reference to the handshake. And it also foreshadows uh, that these council people likewise are evil or intent on doing evil. 
We cut to Faith. She's eating popcorn, watching an old black and white movie, flipping channels. In the background, we get the assassin's point of view as it creeps around Angel's apartment in the shadows. The TV switches to a Superman cartoon. Superman opens a door and comes in triumphantly. An angel opens the door from the bathroom. Steam billows out. He must have just finished a shower. He's bare-chested and asks if she's okay. And Faith says, it was touch and go for that four minutes you left me alone. But somehow I got through it. He goes in his bedroom to change. The assassin clings to the ceiling above. Faith doesn't notice. She channel flips and a news show includes her photo. Her hand drops to the side table and knocks over and breaks a glass. Angel, almost dressed, his shirt still open, comes in to see what's wrong, starts to tell her nothing's changed, and Kate appears on screen, asking people to come forward, telling them don't approach the suspect. She's violent and unpredictable. Faith's breathing hard. Angel takes her by the shoulders and tells her she's safe. So, of course, at that moment, the assassin drops on them from the ceiling. Another example of how things should always be hard for the protagonist, even before the assassin... Angel finally helped Faith feel a little calmer, and the outside world intrudes, first in the form of society's laws and law enforcement, and then the assassin, a demon. There's a huge battle. Faith and Angel fight together, but Faith grabs a kitchen knife, the same one she had in her hands before, and stabs the demon over and over and kills it. Then she sees the blood on the knife, drops it, it lands point down in the floor and sticks there, much as the knife she tortured Wesley with did. She stares at the blood on her hands and she's shaking and Angel leads her to sit down with him there face to face. And this is so much like that scene in Enemies. Faith came to Angel, showed him blood on her hands from a demon and pretended that she was very shaken and realizing, I think she said she might be a cold-blooded straight-up killer. But this time, she is genuinely distraught and needing his help. Angel puts his arms around her and he glances up while he's holding Faith close at the sound of footsteps. Buffy comes down the stairs looking stunned. Buffy is the worst person who could enter this scene for so many reasons. If anyone could make him doubt what he's doing, it might be Buffy. If there's anyone strong enough to stop him from uh, from helping Faith, it's Buffy. And he knows that Faith did terrible things to Buffy. So this is going to bring Faith face to face with some of the worst things that she has done. So Everything here designed to make things as difficult as possible for Angel and also for Faith because she has a subplot here, her own redemption subplot, and this is the worst person, the person she least wants to face. I guess it might be a tie between Buffy and Wesley, but maybe more so Buffy because uh, we'll, we'll wait. We'll hear what she says about that. So we cut to a commercial, Great Hook. When we come back, there's a confrontation. 
When I watched these episodes far apart in time from the Buffy episodes, I felt like Buffy was overreacting because I remembered so strongly all the moments when Buffy was in Faith's body and how Buffy really got to see firsthand how Faith was treated and probably contemplate more than she ever had before that her life might be very different if she grew up the way Faith did, if she lived in Faith's body. And so I felt like they were making Buffy more awful than she would be. But I had forgotten uh, both that the last thing Buffy finds out is that Faith slept with Riley. And also, I had not seen the parallels to enemies before. That essentially Buffy is coming across the same scene and will see that she can't believe that Angel doesn't see that that's what's happening. Also, we have much more hostility than she expects from Angel because she doesn't know that I will remember you happen. So she doesn't know why he is so hurt and angry aside from Faith. Some writers in the audience asked me about book marketing. Because I know not all of you write or publish, I'll be quick on this. If you want to learn more about my experiences and what I've picked up along the way, you can check out writingasasecondcareer.com slash marketing or look at the publishing menu item on writingasasecondcareer.com. For in-depth marketing or publishing courses, I have not created any yet, but I recommend Joanna Penn's Of the Creative Pen, and that's pen with a double N. I love her upbeat attitude, the clear way she presents, and how adaptable everything she shares is, whether you're on your first book or your 14th. You can check out her courses through writingasasecondcareer.com slash pen, that's P-E-N-N. I am an affiliate of Joanna's, so I get a small percentage if you sign up through my link, but I recommend her courses to people all the time and did so before I was an affiliate because I have taken them and found them so useful. But if you prefer, you can find them at her own website, thecreativepen.com. If you do want to use my link, you can check the show notes or go to writingasasecondcareer.com slash pen with a double N. Angel lets go of Faith. He stands. He's buttoning the top buttons on his shirt as he faces Buffy. Faith stays seated, her bloody hands out before her, shaking and staring at them. And Buffy says, what? She glances at Faith. How? What are you doing? Angel says, she, we were attacked. And Buffy says, we, you and, and Angel says, Faith. Faith is now drawing her arms closer into her body, still staring at them. And Buffy says, you and Faith. And she swallows. Such a good use of language here. Just that use of the word we sets off so much for Buffy. Angel tries to tell her it's not what she thinks. And Buffy says, you actually think I can form a thought right now? She tells him Giles heard Faith tried to kill him. 
Angel says that's true. And Buffy says, so you decided to punish her with a severe cuddling? So again, we have that theme of what is the purpose of stopping someone who does a criminal act? Is it punishment? And Angel asks that, is she there to punish Faith? And Buffy says she was worried about Angel. Faith says Buffy's name, looks down, cringes, and looks ashamed as Buffy walks toward her. Angel tells Buffy Faith needs help, and Buffy says, help, do you have any idea what she did to me? And Angel says, yes, and she says, do you care? Angel tells her Faith wants to change, that she has a chance to change, and Buffy responds, no, no chance, jail. Faith stands and starts to say she's, and Buffy says, you apologize to me, I will beat you to death. I love this because it is a real conflict. Faith has made progress. She's about to genuinely say she's sorry. She means it. She feels it in her heart and she's able to do it. She even gets the ass out in sorry. But Buffy can't stand to hear it. We understand that because she has every reason not to believe it. Even though she walked in Faith's shoes, she knows what Faith did. And it wasn't just Riley. She also terrorized Joyce. And then we go back to enemies. She has no reason to think Faith is genuine. She doesn't know what has happened on Angel in this last episode and a half. And it also raises another thematic question. If you are wronged, if a crime is done to you or someone has hurt you, do you have the obligation to forgive. And I think of this because of my parents' deaths. People would ask me, did I forgive the man who killed them, the drunk driver who killed them? And I always struggled with that because on the one hand, I did not want to hang on to that forever. It, it would not help me and it would not be a recipe for a happy life. I wanted to believe that he would not have gotten in the car that day if he knew he was going to kill two people. I want to believe that nobody would get in a car drunk if they truly grasped how likely it was they would kill someone by doing that. But is it my job to forgive? For one thing, I felt like my parents were the victims. Forgiving this person is like saying it's up to me to say that that is forgivable. And I, I felt like I couldn't do that, but I could let go of it. And it did help me once this man was sentenced. It took a while after, but over time, I started to feel a little bit better. But I felt like people thought it was my job, it, like an obligation to forgive the person. And I think that's an interesting question. Is it your job if you have been hurt to forgive the other person to help them? Or is it their job to make their amends if they need to do that, to say they're sorry, and they're not owed the response that they want for that? And I think that Buffy's position is very genuine in that you, you can't always just go to forgiveness. And particularly for Buffy, this just happened. Uh, this just happened. And to be expected to turn on a dime and go with forgiveness, which seems to be what Angel is expecting her to do, is pretty difficult. I think Faith really gets that more than Angel does, or she just feels so terrible about herself still because she tells Buffy, when Buffy says that, I will beat you to death, if she apologizes, Faith says, go ahead. Angel steps in between them and Buffy says, you gonna stop me because you're gonna have to. This is the line I still don't buy because 
Buffy said she'd beat Faith to death if she apologized. I don't believe that Buffy, the character we have seen, would beat Faith to death out of vengeance. She started by saying jail. And I feel like we're asked to believe here that that she would just kill Faith. I realized she tried to do it before, but that was when she threw, when she stabbed Faith, that was when she believed Faith's death would save Angel. Angel tells Faith to go upstairs, but Buffy says she's not letting Faith out of her sight. Now that I buy. Angel tells Faith again, go upstairs, and she starts to. Buffy tells Faith, don't move a muscle, and turns toward her, it looks like, to grasp Faith's arm. And Angel takes Buffy's arm to stop her. She turns around and punches him. He punches back hard. She recovers and stares at him with her hand to her mouth, and he says, I'm sorry. At 28 minutes, 19 seconds in, we cut to upstairs. Faith is there. Wesley walks in behind her and asks if she's going somewhere, and she says no. And he asks if Angel's downstairs, and she says yes, and Wesley approaches her. So we know he has that syringe. The scene cuts to the conference room where the three L's are there, and Lila tells Lee and Lindsay strike two. The assassin they sent to kill Faith is now dead. Lindsay says they've gone about this all wrong. We're lawyers. It's a mistake to try to work outside the law. We cut back to Angel, who tells Buffy that Faith is not going to run, and Buffy says why would she when she has her brave knight to protect her? A great example of how sarcasm so often comes out of deep hurt and vulnerability, and Buffy asks him what got to him, Faith crying, her pouty lips. He says he didn't want this to happen, and Buffy says, you hit me. And Angel responds, well, not to go all schoolyard on you, but you hit me first. And in case you've forgotten, you're a little bit stronger than I am. He also says Buffy was about three seconds from making Faith run, and Faith's at a crucial stage. And Buffy tells him Faith is playing him. Angel tells her that when Faith tried to kill him, it was just a cry for help. And I love this line from Buffy. A cry for help is when you say help in a loud voice. But Angel tells her she can't possibly know what Faith is going through. And Buffy cuts him off and says, but of course you do. I'm sorry. I can't be in your club. I've never murdered anybody. Again, real life conflict. We're more on Angel's side here because we've seen all that he has seen. We believe, we don't know what's going to happen, but we believe Faith wants to change. But Buffy, knowing what she knows and with the experiences she has, also has a genuine position. This is real conflict that cannot easily be resolved between them. At 30 minutes, 21 seconds in, Faith and Wesley hurry downstairs. Wesley tells them in 20 minutes the council's special op team is coming here, and they'll expect to find Angel gone and Faith drugged. He shows them the syringe, and he says, Hello, Buffy. I'm afraid you've come at a bad time. Wesley says he brought the team here because he couldn't shake them and he had to pretend to help. So this is a great example of a fake out, but it is fair play. If you go back and watch all of it, knowing that Wesley is 
only playing along or at some point he decides to just play along, everything that happened still works. We are not shown anything that if we go back, we would say, oh, no, you know, no way Wesley would do that or say that if he's faking it out. It all fits. So that is the best kind of twist. We could figure it out from the evidence, but we don't because the way it's presented misleads us. But what actually happens fits the twist. Now, when Wesley mentions these special ops, Buffy says, I know these guys, they're killers. Maybe this gives her a tiny bit more sympathy for Faith, brings her back to that moment where they spit on her and where they didn't care if one of their own guys got killed and just the way they saw Faith as trash and also saw all Slayers that way in essence. But the show doesn't actually tell us that. We just get that hint that Buffy is concerned for Faith because otherwise she'd be saying, great, let him come here and kill her. Although she would hopefully still be concerned about Angel. But I think it shows she is concerned about Faith. She is not ready to kill her. Faith has slipped out. Angel says she'd go to the roof and starts to go after, but Wesley tells him they need a plan. Buffy can protect Faith, but Angel understandably says, I'm not sure that's her agenda. All the same, he and Wesley head for those underground tunnels to protect that access to the apartment. Wesley tells Angel he's not doing this for Faith, but because he trusts Angel. I like the nuance of that. He doesn't say he's doing it for Angel, but because he trusts Angel, apparently even about Faith. Though Wesley does add, well, more than three gun-toting maniacs, at least. Now we have our last major turn of this episode, and I think this is a pretty strong three-quarter turn because it does spin the story yet again. At 31 minutes, 11 seconds in, Kate and Lindsay are talking. She does not trust him. She despises him and his clients, but he shows her a photo of Faith, tells her he understands what she's facing. They have a common enemy and also says he gets any extra legal measures Kate took against the creatures who killed her father. The law is not equipped to deal with them and it's not equipped to deal with Angel who thinks he's above the law and it's why he gives aid and comfort to a known murderer. So we get a tiny bit of Kate's backstory and Lindsay playing on it and now law enforcement will also be coming directly after Faith. Buffy finds Faith on the roof. Faith is looking out over the city. Buffy tells her she's not going to run. Faith asks what Buffy wants to do, throw her off the roof again, and Buffy says any reason why I shouldn't. I want to take this as hyperbole because again I, I I don't think that's what Buffy is here to do, but I can understand Faith making that point. Buffy did try to kill her. She didn't actually throw her off the roof, though. Faith jumped off. But all the same, it was to avoid Buffy. Faith says, there's nothing I can do for you, B. I can't ever make it right, which is true. But Buffy makes a really good point. She says, so you're just going to take off again. Leave us to clean up another one of your messes. Faith claims that would make things easier for Buffy, but Buffy also worries Faith will get bored with, quote, the whole guilt thing, close quote, and come back and shake things up. I love this because 
it foreshadows what Faith chooses to do at the end. She has been internalizing the things Angel has said. She has been working through things. And I think that Buffy's statement here that Faith will get bored with the guilt thing, come back and shake things up, that Faith ultimately recognizes that that is what would happen if she just tries to go do this on her own. But for now, we don't know she has taken it in because she just reacts and says, Angel said there was no way you were ever going to give me a chance. And Buffy says, I gave you every chance. And she says she tried hard to help Faith, and Faith spat on her, saw Buffy's life as a plaything. Buffy says, Angel, Riley, anything that you could take from me, you took. Buffy says she has lost battles before, but no one else ever made her a victim. And Faith says, and you can't stand that. You're all about control. You have no idea what it's like on the other side. I mean, nothing's in control. Nothing makes sense. There's just pain and hate, and nothing you do means anything. You can't even. And Buffy says, shut up. And Faith responds, just tell me how to make it better. And I I feel like there is this connection between them that Buffy, perhaps more than ever before, has this window into Faith's world and sees that, yes, Buffy is bound by these rigid rules or she imposes them on herself, but it provides this safety, this emotional support that she also gets from all these other things in her life. And that Faith not only has none of that, not the mom, not the watcher, but just feels out of control all the time and how that would feel. This connection is uh, interrupted. The door bursts open. Thug 2, who had seemed so reasonable, emerges with a giant automatic weapon. Buffy sees him first, grabs Faith, and pulls her down out of the way just before Thug 2 shoots, showing us that Buffy is still going to protect Faith. Angel and Wesley hear it. They're about to go up from Angel's apartment, but Thug 1 opens fire on them. He also has a crossbow for Angel. On the roof, Buffy tells Faith she thinks they can make it to the next building. They run together as the gun fires, and a helicopter rises directly over them, shines a bright light on them, and we cut to commercial. Also, great hooks in this episode. We return at 35 minutes in. The helicopter now is firing at them, too. Thug 3 is in there. He's he's standing, and he's firing down. They run together, take cover, and it's so good to see them working together again. Inside Angel's apartment, Wesley tries to reason with Thug One. While on the roof, Buffy tells Faith to stay where there's some cover, and she'll take out Thug Two and draw the fire of the helicopter. Downstairs, Thug One asks Wesley if his sacred watcher's oath means nothing. Wesley claims it does. He swore to protect the innocent. He tells Angel to go to the roof and help. Angel runs. Wesley ducks out from behind a pillar, throws a syringe like a dart, and hits the thug's neck and says 180. Really nice use of props here, too. That knife that Faith had earlier came back when she killed the demon assassin, and now the darts. The fact that Wesley is so good at darts comes back. I feel like nothing in this episode is way It all seems so purposeful, even the most minor details. The thug is swaying, he's woozy, and Wesley punches him, and he drops to the ground. So now we are at the climax. The opposing forces have their final clash and resolve. 
or I should say we're moving toward it because first Angel is going to defeat one aspect of society or the world, the other two thugs. Angel is on the roof. Buffy punched out thug two. She turns to face the shining light from the helicopter. Angel leaps up, grabs the um, bottom edge of the helicopter, gets himself in, throws thug three down, and he lands next to Buffy who is just watching. Now, if it was her show, she would never be standing there just watching, but it's Angel's show. So that's why he has the dramatic confrontation and the final defeat of the last of the thugs. Buffy, though, had her own subplot, very short, but very nicely constructed just within this small part of the episode, cycling through all this anger to actually working with Faith again. Angel vamps out. He tells the pilot to take the helicopter down. Buffy looks around, calls Faith's name. The helicopter lands and there are sirens and police cars arrive. So the physical action, the the physical fighting is over, but we are still in the climax. This isn't falling action because Angel is still facing all the forces of society aligned against him and Faith because Kate, law enforcement, demands to know where Faith is. Angel says nothing and she has him arrested for aiding and abetting. So though he defeated the council, Note that again, things get harder for Angel. And it's not just law enforcement. It is the one cop that that he liked, that he hoped would fight at his side or at least believe they were on the same side and she doesn't trust him anymore. So also a lot about trust here. At 38 minutes, four seconds in, Wesley and Buffy arrive in a convertible at the police station. Buffy is right behind as Kate and other cops walk Angel up the stairs into the main station area. Kate tells him he'll like his cell. It faces east. There's a great view of the sunrise in about four hours. Buffy realizes Kate knows what Angel is and she says this is murder. So it's also the most challenging in that Kate is a cop who knows what Angel is and she is willing to threaten him with death and to see him die and he has to be willing to do it he says to Buffy it's all right and Buffy says it's not all right you are not taking the fall for her it's not going to happen but Angel says Buffy and we see Faith sitting at an officer's desk handcuffed she stands steps in front of Kate face to face and says I'd like to make a confession We get a shot of her hands in handcuffs again. Obviously, she could break them apart and run, and she doesn't. This is interesting, too, because Angel is our protagonist, but Faith has that last moment. And it is a climax for her subplot. But for the two-story arc, it is also Angel's victory. He was the one who kept pushing against society, including against Faith to help her redeem herself, to keep believing that she could. When he succeeds in helping her make a different choice, it is the protagonist prevailing over society. And now we get to the falling action where we tie up loose ends and resolve subplots, which include Wesley's view of faith and redemption and who can be saved that started in 5 by 5 the Angel-Buffy subplot, and Faith's subplot. We get a little bit to tell us where she finally ends or how she feels. So at 39 minutes, 7 seconds in, Angel and Buffy are in the hall. 
Buffy says he could have told her what was going on or he should have told her. Angel said he didn't think it was her business. He needed more time with Faith. Buffy is dumbfounded, asks if he has any idea what it was like for her to see him with Faith, and she says that you would behind my back. And Angel says, Buffy, this wasn't about you. This was about saving somebody's soul. That's what I do here, and you're not a part of it. That was your idea, remember? We stay away from each other. This is, again, a very real conflict. Buffy and Angel, both the characters and the shows, have different missions. Buffy is mainly about protection, and Angel's is mainly about redemption. And as he says, saving souls. So in a way, we're also telling the audience that. And it does create this conflict between them, Buffy and Angel, not just here, but it is part of why Angel gave up being human, gave up the chance to be with Buffy. His ostensible reason was there's these soldiers of darkness coming, he has to be able to fight them. But you could argue that they could have found a way to fight physically, but Angel couldn't keep up his mission the same way to seek redemption both for himself but to save other souls he couldn't do that the same way as a human being as he could as a vampire and then of course all the hurt angel feels when he says well that was your choice except it it wasn't it was angel's choice but buffy doesn't know that and that brings in so much of that pain he must feel of having experienced I will remember you and Buffy not remembering it. And now Buffy says she came because he was in danger, but he argues he's in danger every day. That's also was true for Pangs when he came to Sunnydale, that Buffy was in danger every day, but we'll let that go. But Angel says Buffy came because of faith. She was looking for vengeance. And Buffy says, I have a right to it. This is another line I'm not quite sure Buffy would say. The whole series is about how vengeance is not justice and vengeance is rarely a good idea. Buffy almost never acts out of vengeance or lets anyone else do that. But there are very strong emotions here. She and Angel are both so upset and angry and angel says not in my city and she stares at him shocked and she looks away and looks back and now tells him she has someone in her life and she says that i love and that it's not what she and angel had it's very new and then she says you know what makes it new i trust him I know him. So there is a lot of trust here, whether Wesley trusts Angel, whether Faith does, whether Kate does, whether Buffy does. Angel isn't looking at Buffy as she talks, but now he does. And he says, that's great. That's nice. You moved on. I can't. You found someone new. I'm not allowed to remember. I see you again. It cuts me up inside. And the person I share that with is me. You don't know me anymore. So don't come down here with your great new life and expect me to do things your way. Go home. She turns away, gets her coat. He's facing the wall, his hands flat against it. And she says to his back, see Faith wins again. After she's walked down the stairs, he slams his hands against the wall. Wesley approaches, asks if he's all right. Angel turns around and says, well, for a taciturn, shadowy guy, I got a big mouth. And Wesley says he doesn't know how much his opinion counts for and goes on, but I think you did the right thing. And Angel says, yelling at Buffy. And Wesley says, no, the, the other thing. Angel says he didn't do it. Faith did. 
we have ended Wesley's arc. He has come back to where he started that faith can be redeemed. She has a soul, but he came to it through his trust in Angel. As Angel says, faith did it. We fade to faith in a cell at the far end of a cell block. So we see hers alone and just the other cells on the side. She's sitting completely still, her hands on her knees, much like the pose in the back of the truck at the end of Who Are You? Also note that she is behind bars, and she was at the beginning of the episode behind those bars of the elevator cage. Wesley's voice over it says he hopes she's strong enough to make it. The barred door over the entire cell block shuts, Wesley says peace is not an easy thing to find, and Angel says she has a chance. Sunlight gradually makes its way into the cell. So remember Angel's cell, Kate threatened him with the sunrise coming. Now that sun shines on Faith's face, her eyes shut, but her face is relaxed for the first time that we have seen, maybe ever, and relieved. And that is the end of the episode. I have a few things in foreshadowing and spoilers, so I hope you will stick around for that. Thank you so much for listening. Please come back in two weeks to hear about Buffy's season four, episode 17, Superstar, where Buffy's entire world changes, and this time it's not because of faith. And we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing. Buffy telling Angel she has someone new in her life that I love. I don't believe we ever see her tell Riley she loves him. And that becomes a problem. Riley ultimately doesn't believe she loves him or doesn't feel it. So very interesting that she tells Angel that. And she couples it with, it's not what you and I have. And she makes the distinction that that's different because she trusts Riley, but I'm not sure. I feel like that's something she's saying just to be mean to Angel because we've seen she can't entirely trust Riley. Maybe not Riley's fault, but he's part of the initiative. He had that time when he was drugged and very sick. So it's not that clear that Buffy knows she can trust Riley. And I think there's a lot of foreshadowing there when she says it's not what you and I had. Certainly that'll be an issue for Riley. He's afraid. He does not measure up to Angel. And, and actually, when we get to the episode where Buffy comes back from Sunnydale, that's when Angel crosses over into Buffy and Riley and Angel have a confrontation. So in that sense, it's too bad I did this a little out of order. The other thing when one of the Watcher thugs is talking about Faith having the power and the willingness to use that power for evil, and he says she must be stopped. And you have to wonder, given what we saw about these guys before. Well, actually, I don't wonder. I think it's pretty clear. It is not just that Faith is willing to use the power for evil. The council does not love young women having power. And we'll see that revisited in season five in Checkpoint when Buffy grasps that the council has come to town. They're saying they're there to test her and see if she can measure up so they can give her information she needs to fight Glory, the season five antagonist, but she finally realizes it's about power and she has it and they don't and they're the ones who need her. And of course, in season seven of Buffy, we will revisit this theme more explicitly about power and about Buffy sharing her power. 
Buffy's still feeling Faith won again. Even though at the end, Faith did the right thing in this episode, she still feels Faith has won. And this foreshadows season seven when Faith comes back. Buffy will struggle with working with Faith, with her envy that Faith knows Angel in a way that Buffy can't. And it's not just about their pasts. It's about the present. Faith understands who Angel is after he leaves Sunnydale more than Buffy does. And she actually will, through a spell, be in Angel's mind and go through part of his life with him. And that is really hard for Buffy. And finally, the potentials in season seven, they like Faith better than Buffy. They want Faith to have a chance to lead them. And Faith Faith is not trying to take control from Buffy, but there is this conflict there. So all of that foreshadowed, all of those power dynamics. What an amazing episode all around. And that is all I have for it. So thank you again for listening. And I do hope you'll come back in two weeks for Superstar, where Jonathan, remember him from high school, becomes the best of everything. If you're enjoying Buffy and the Art of Story, please write a review, share it on social media, or tell a friend. You can also support the podcast on Patreon and get access to bonus content, including Q&As about Buffy and about writing, a breakdown of the pilot episode of Jessica Jones, and a story analysis of the first episode of Angel, the series. Follow the link in the show notes or go to Lisa Lily, that's L-I-L-L-Y dot com slash Patreon. You can also find my fiction and back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at LisaLilly.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Served.